Hey Cynical listeners, Kaiser here. This week on the channel, you'll be hearing a special episode by China Econ Talk, the latest member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. China Econ Talk, which is hosted by Jordan Schneider, is an interview-based show that goes in-depth on China's tech scene and its broader economy. If you are interested in the trade war, on Chinese economic reform, or the latest issues that are facing China's internet giants, China Econ Talk may be your new favorite show. To get more episodes, search China Econ Talk. That's China Econ Talk, one word, on your favorite podcast app. There's already a back catalog of 20 shows waiting for you to explore, conversations with a great range of economists and analysts and, and a whole lot more. We'll have new episodes for you every week. For this debut episode on the Seneca Network, Jordan is going to be talking with Jeff Ding, who is an amazing guy. He publishes a terrific newsletter on artificial intelligence. Definitely check it out. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host Jordan Schneider here today with Jeff Ding, Rhodes Scholar and DPhil candidate at Oxford University. He's also a fellow at the outrageously named Future of Humanity Institute. He recently authored a white paper entitled Deciphering China's AI Dream and runs a weekly newsletter, C-H-I-N-A-I capitalized, China AI, where he translates a number of Chinese language articles related to AI once a week. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jordan. So, so Jeff, what first got you interested in studying uh, developments in Chinese AI? So I had always been interested in China and studying foreign policy. Uh, so started with a master's at Oxford in international relations. But while I was there, there was a group called the Rhodes AI Lab, and they kind of paired non-technical strategists like myself, who knew nothing about AI, with people who were doing PhDs in machine learning and put us together on teams to do AI for social good problems. So the first problem I worked on was uh, a project diagnosing sleep apnea, how to use um, machine learning to improve diagnostic measures uh, for sleep apnea. And after that, kind of got hooked on AI and started reading more about the technology um, and realizing how powerful this tool was. Um, and it just so happened that the Future of Humanity Institute was starting up a new governance of AI program, and they were looking for interns who spoke Mandarin, had some degree of China expertise. So that was a perfect combination. So it's interesting that you sort of had had this realization that AI was kind of going to be really important to the you know the future of uh, humanity, I guess. But this is also some a revelation that the Chinese government has had and has been paying more and more attention to over the past few years. Um, so could you talk a little bit about f from where exactly the Chinese government got it in their head that AI is is going to be this 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 crucial determinant of the nation's future? I would say that looking at some of the Baidu trend data, which is kind of like Google trend data, uh, there's a couple of spikes. Uh, one of the spikes actually happened way back in October 2016, uh, where the U.S. Uh, White House uh, Obama administration at the time had released a series of three white papers on preparing for an AI future and kind of outlining the tenets, the framework for an AI strategy. Uh, there was a lot of buzz around that at the time. 
And then you see a second spike uh, around March 2016, which was when uh, Google DeepMind's AlphaGo defeated uh, Lisa Dole in the Go match. Um, and there was a big spike around then. So it was kind of like the big government push and um, Chinese government, Chinese public seeing that the US was emphasizing AI. Um, and then a couple, um, and then uh, in March, also uh, a big push um, earlier that year. Could you talk a little bit more about the uh, the Go live stream and, and, and how that sort of played out domestically in China? There was a live stream of a later match uh, with Kujie. So this happens after the March match with Lisa Dole. And that stream was censored and blocked. So I think th- there's a lot of speculation about why it was blocked. Um, some say it was because Go represents a particular sensitive subject for China because it's it has such a long history in China and also has these ties to military strategy. Um, so there is speculation that it was kind of an embarrassment for a Western company like Google to beat the leading Chinese Go player um, in this game. I remember this story of the DPRK being in the World Cup, and I think they were playing Brazil, and they ended up losing 7-1 to one or something like that. But by the time it was 4-0, the feed just cut out because the powers that be in North Korea had sort of had enough. So, so the Chinese government, they have this realization that AI is going to be really important. Could you talk a little bit about the government drivers of AI development in China? You know, what are, what are the sort of the plans? What are the dollar amounts behind them? The July 2017 State Council um, National AI Development Plan sets this target of 150 billion RMB for the scale of the core AI industry in 2020. Um, So that's a pretty substantial figure. Um, It's a figure that references kind of gross output. Um, It's not like the total amount of funding that the government is putting into AI, but just rather a target for kind of the scale of the industry. Um, And then those figures escalate for 2025 and 2030. And the goal is to eventually become the primary innovation center for AI. The priority has to be taken in, in context with a lot of other strategic technologies. So the planning for AI, the ramping up period, the setting it as a national level strategic target, kind of the implementation offices, a lot of that, that process mirrors and reflects similar processes that happen with biotech and nanotechnology. And it's this idea that it fits with this overall interest in indigenous innovation, seizing this high ground in the technology with significant strategic implications, both in economic competitiveness, but also for national security. Uh, so that's kind of the big picture layout um, from the government point of view. So it's interesting because because a lot of these past efforts to kind of kickstart basic research haven't necessarily had nearly as much success as the government uh, has wanted. So w- what lessons do you think the CCP has learned from, from past work in this regard? In bioscience, uh, biotechnology, you did have a similar kind of ramping up of making biotech more of a priority. Um, The Chinese government set up a national center for biotechnology development. Uh, There was a kind of biotech development policy outline um, in 1988, which established 30 national key laboratories. Uh, So you had all this like signaling of a big government push. And then there was also other consistencies in terms of drawing talent, um, overseas acquisitions. Um, Chinese firms had about 3.9 billion in overseas acquisitions in 2016. 
Um, and there are signs that this sort of long-term investment is bearing fruit. Um, now it's 20 to 30 years later, you have a lot of advances in cloning techniques, uh, viral epidemics. At the same time, there's not a particularly competitive tech giant like biotech company on the scale of Alibaba. So the closest would probably be something like China's genomic giant BGI, um, which has produced a number of breakthroughs. Uh, but still, it's like if you compare its IPO with Alibaba's, Alibaba's it's about one three hundredth the size. Um, and then still some of the most basic and fundamental research that's being done in biotech is coming from the U.S. And China has very few of the kind of fundamental groundbreaking innovations. So those trends might, you might find similar echoes in what happens with AI. Uh, the big difference here is I think you have, you have the private sector and some of these key tech giants taking a leading role in the AI push, whereas you didn't have that with biotechnology. That sector almost had to be built up from the ground. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting to think because I imagine that the world's best researchers are maybe not necessarily sitting in universities, but have already been poached off um, to these big tech firms where they can make you know millions of dollars a year as opposed to whatever their you know associate professorship would have been would have been giving them. So I'm curious just how important you you really think these government programs really are. If if on the one hand it it does sort of seem like the the big tech giants are where the most interesting uh, AI research is happening. I think that's a crucial tension point for AI development in any country. So kind of the issue of the most talented people going to companies, uh, and then if for long-term development, you might need some of those talented people to be at universities and teaching the next generation. So kind of education is a key feature of China's AI push, where they're building out these um, talent cultivation programs. So an example is I think iFlyTech is partnering with a university in Chongqing to kind of a way to kind of get some of these technical talents who are working at companies to feed back into universities to create labs at universities um, that have close partnerships with these companies. So iFlyTech and Chongqing, um, some of the top Chinese AI researchers uh, like Professor Nanjing by the name of Zhou Zhihua, he also sits on kind of like an academic advisory position to JD. Jingdong.com. So kind of building a more closer tie between industry and academia, uh, like you see with Google and Stanford connections. That's one part of it. From a zooming out into like overall what the government can do when kind of the leading push is coming from private sector is I do think the government has an important role in terms of kind of cultivating the right policy environment. So these are things like maybe encouraging more standardization of uh, data formatting, so it makes it easier to integrate data, um, or having the technical standards in place that judge like how reliable does facial recognition have to be for it to be used in this domain or Y domain. So there is that kind of that guiding role from from the government, and then there's big, and then some of the fundamental basic science research can be inspired by government funding as well. What I find interesting is, is you know, with with this sort of basic biotech research uh, and the bio and biotech research is like this stuff is very easily patentable. I'm curious to to what extent these algorithms really need to be developed domestically, or in what ways China can sort of piggyback on uh, research going on elsewhere. A, a good example of the piggybacking is the Google Tencent uh, patent deal, and if you dig down into the details of that deal. 
uh, some people have kind of guessed which patents were leased from Google to Tencent. And a lot of those were machine learning based, uh, whether it's question answering systems or uh, NLP based systems. So in some sense, some of these algorithms uh, might be able to, to, to be licensed. I think in another sense, a, a lot of these algorithms might while they can be generalizable, um, if you're able to build your own algorithm based on your own data set, it might be, there might be specialization advantages from that. Um, and also to keep advancing um, and to keep up with the continuous innovation in the space, having that capability to develop your own algorithms um, is definitely a benefit. As someone who has been uh, desperately suffering from the you know terribleness of Baidu and Tencent search for the past year now, I am I am uh, more than happy to see Google sign this deal um, to hopefully make it easier to find stuff. Um, super interesting though. The the other uh, thing I wanted to ask about was this idea of picking winners and losers, um, which is something you you often hear in the U.S. context of um, you, you know Republicans being angry at at or or, or uh, members of both parties actually being angry at the government, sort of uh, uh, putting their fingers on the scale when it comes to um, helping particular companies get get a, get an advantage. But this seems to be something that the Chinese government is doing pretty explicitly when it comes to AI. Yeah. So in November 2017, the Ministry of Science and Technology designated four national champions to lead in the development of these national AI innovation platforms. Uh, so there was Baidu for self-driving cars, Alibaba for smart cities, Tencent for medical diagnosis, precision medicine, and iFlyTech for voice recognition, voice intelligence. And yeah, these these national endorsements could give these companies kind of a preferential treatment or send a signal that these are the companies we deem to be the flag bearer in these areas. At the same time, it could also dampen competition. I think it'll be interesting to see how much weight this national champion designation has. Because there's so much competition in this space now. All the uh, Alibaba and Tencent are competing in almost every space. Um, Tencent, I think, just signed a deal to set up 30 smart cities in Jiangsu province, I think. So I don't think it's, it was a strong enough signal to say Alibaba owns this space. And I think there will still be a lot of competition even in Baidu's self-driving car space, there's so many new self-driving car startups popping up to to challenge Baidu's lead there. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in, in recent Chinese economic history, being deemed the national champion isn't always necessarily good. And, you know, the, there tends to be get, uh, get created, particularly in a lot of these um, state-owned enterprises, um, you know, a bit of a moral hazard where people think, oh, I'm the, you know, I, I have the backing of the government, so I can sort of like mess around a little more. And, you know, I have more R&D, but the government will sort of always bail me out because um, I'm the company that is supposed to be on the cutting edge. But, you know, hmm. definitely given the level of competition it 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 does seem to be that there may be a lot more cutting against that than like you know having the salt monopoly or being you know the steel champion or what right. have you another one of the interesting things that your uh, your paper did was was try to evaluate uh, the progress and sort of compare where different countries are uh, in terms of their you know ai prowess I'm curious because this this does seem to be a pretty intangible thing to really um, get your hands about. So so how you thought about putting numbers to this this rather abstract concept of AI superiority, I guess the AI power rankings. We thought that if we could attach some types of metrics to give a very rough cut estimate 
of different aspects that may affect a country's potential to develop AI, it's at least better than what's out there right now and could create a more grounded idea of where countries stand. For sure. I'm pretty sick of reading Mike Allen, you know, the sky is falling, China taking over the AI world types of sentences that just sort of have adjectives and don't have numbers. So I got to say this was a this was a this was a real breath of fresh air. And this isn't the Cold War anymore. You can't just count up the number of tanks and planes. So it's a it's a big uh, it's a big challenge you took on. So why don't why don't you walk us through the uh, the different criteria that you landed on and why you chose to include them? I thought there were four key drivers in a country's AI ecosystem. The first is hardware and then data and then kind of talent encapsulated in the research and algorithms um, that are being developed. And then finally, the commercial AI sector, which is kind of a, like a product of all three and kind of a signal of how all, all of the three previous drivers are working together well or not. And in each driver, develop a couple of proxy measures for the relative strengths and weaknesses of a particular country's investment in that driver. Um, and the main finding was across all four drivers, the one in which the only one in which China had a lead in was in data. Um, and even then, it's a very rough measure of just mobile users. Um, it's very hard to get kind of just brute data metrics. Um, there are some metrics that say China will get 20% of the world's data or 30% of the world's data by X date, but then there's not really a corresponding figure for the US or other countries. Uh, so, so some of the proxies are just very rough estimates. So where did we, uh, where did we end up? Yeah, so the idea is in each proxy measure, then you take the percentage of the world's share of whatever proxy you're measuring. Um, and so China had about 17% of the world's share across these four drivers, whereas the U.S. had 33% of the world's share. Um, and the idea is this is a rough estimate of a country's AI potential, that if they were to mobilize all of their resources towards uh, an AI project, this is the potential of the world's share they could capture. So one of the interesting things that I took away from this is the very explicit linkage and power that the PLA, the Chinese, the Chinese army and government more generally kind of has over the, the big tech leaders and that they can very explicitly leverage the developments that a Baidu or Alibaba makes. Whereas on the other hand, you know, we just saw Google employees a few months ago sort of rejecting working with the, the U.S. military on a sort of drone AI project to like better use computer vision to, um, uh, to, to identify combatants and non-combatants. So I'm curious that how, how you'd sort of conceptualize this, that even though the U.S. maybe have more advanced capacity in its private sector, the private sector may not necessarily be willing to go along with what the, uh, with what the government says, whereas in China, that's, that's not really the case. Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good touching off point. Uh, I think the discussion is a little bit, it's hard to disentangle because whereas I don't see a scenario in which, you know, thousands of Alibaba employees sign an open letter protesting, say, a hypothetical Alibaba PLA collaborative project. Um, if you do look at kind of the overall degree of civil military fusion and the overall level of integration of the defense industrial base, actually that level for China significantly lags behind that of the U.S. So 
you still um so the dod does implement project maven um and while there is a backlash it was implemented in the first place Um, amazon has publicized its image recognition work with the dod microsoft announced i think back in october uh 2017 that its cloud technology will handle classified information for the military and defense agencies so you have this very high level of integration with the private sector where i think 80 percent of defense informatization expenditures go to the private sector in developed countries, whereas China is kind of forging ahead to try to get to that level. And there's still a lot of issues with state-owned monopolies in the military industry. So, yeah, I think shifting the index towards measuring more specific outputs, like to the degree to which the military can leverage private capital, is is a is an important exercise. But you have to take into account other va- variables like civil military fusion, the degree to which there are channels between the private sector and the military sector. Yeah, just the incentives for talented people in the private sector to stay in the private sector because they don't get stock options in the military. So all these factors play into the situation. That That's super interesting. I'm wondering if you could expand a little more on the sort of challenges that the that the Chinese government is having in, in sort of more aggressively incorporating uh, the uh, the private sector. Yeah, so for the newsletter, we've translated two white papers on civil military fusion. And the consistent theme around this is that talented researchers are not incentivized to work for state-owned enterprises in the military industry because there's strict restrictions on the shares that are available for employees. So you can't buy a house in Beijing if you're working for the military industry. You can buy a house in Beijing if you're working for a startup where you can get stock options and you know be a part of the company. Uh, all at this, uh, uh, all all at the same time, you know there are these key institutions like uh, investment institutions um, that like you need investment institutions who are investing in kind of in the military industry uh, in startups that could potentially play a role in the military industry. And those are, and it's hard for those investment institutions to operate because the companies can't really, um, some of these companies can't share information because it's classified. And there's also just the issue of monopolies um, with state-owned enterprises in the military industry. So you have, you know, unsustainable valuations and corruption. So there's actually a lot of issues, and, and that's not even accounting for just AI-specific issues, where with these new emergent technologies, it's hard to incorporate it immediately into the military industry and into military applications because the military maximizes for reliability, whereas um, private sector is maximizing for efficiency. Uh, So whereas it's okay to have maybe one mistake in five in some certain applications, if you have one in five as the threshold in the military, that's that's just not going to cut it. So... Uh, a lot of these white papers are predicting that the surge in civil military fusion for China will not occur until three to five years later. Uh, and 
AI technologies, emerging technologies will mostly be used as technical reserves. It's interesting to think for, for all the issues that Americans may have with contractors and the contracting system that, um, you know, cost tax taxpayers untold billions of dollars. Um, there, there, there is, you know, a channel in which these sorts of procurements happen where the latest technology really can come from Silicon Valley and from, um, uh, uh, and from other uh, and from other leading tech companies, which it doesn't seem China has yet to quite have figured out. So another interesting line in your evaluation of Chinese uh, research says some have called opaque the nature of the Chinese discussion about the limits of ethical AI research. I was wondering if you could expand a little in that sentence. This discussion around how far you can go with AI is opaque in the sense that I don't. I think like there are some that there's some that's only happening in Chinese language, so it's not accessible to a Western audience. And I think the more I started to dig, the more I thought that there's actually a lot more abundant, diverse discussions of ethical AI, whether it's privacy, uh, whether it's um, technical standards in terms of reliability and controllability. Um, what I at that that sentence was written in the context of one of the big areas that we're interested in here at the Future of Humanity Institute, which is the longer term existential risks of AI, uh, things like superintelligence and uh, AI safety, ensuring that uh, more powerful AI systems have values that are aligned with humans. Um, and and in, in that space, there hasn't been as much engagement um, with Chinese institutions. Uh, and a lot of uh, some of the leading technologists in China, um, and in the case, it's the case with the US too, where a lot of the leading technologists are dismissive of these long-term concerns uh, because they think that these threat theories will kind of um, overly hype AI or bias the public against AI and kind of limit AI development um, and kind of not looking at some of these long-term risks. So I think that's one area where the discussion is opaque. Uh, I think another key area to highlight is there, I, there's not, there hasn't been as much discussion in Chinese language. Actually, I haven't found much in Chinese language media about the application of facial recognition and surveillance techniques towards distant groups, minority groups, um, in Xinjiang, which has been covered widely in the media. So just the absence of having these topics where it's a key, it's, it's obviously a very salient issue. And as AI becomes more powerful, the extent to which uh, the surveillance regime can be extended will only grow. So not having as much discussions about that uh, is a little disheartening. Yeah. And and rather predictable. While, um, you know, the singularity may be outside the scope of China econ talk, um, AI in Xinjiang certainly isn't. So let's uh, let's take it there for a second. Uh, I'm curious uh, to what extent I think Tyler Cowen first made this argument about how technology and AI in particular are making it are making lives easier um, for those running police states to keep control over their population. Um, so so do you have any thoughts on this on this question? It's a constant debate in the political science, political economy literature about whether technology is actually liberalizing and decentralizes power, or whether it centralizes it. Probably a good cut point for China in AI is facial recognition, the application of facial recognition. So there is this dystopian vision of being able to track people in this central database um, as they go from one place to another. Probably on the ground right now, it doesn't. 
like in practice that is not achievable. There was a good New York Times article by Paul Mosier that outlines a lot of the good details on this front. So only only 15% of China's 200 million cameras actually have the resolution to do some facial recognition. So that's already kind of a big limiting factor. It takes a long time to refit um, and revamp camera systems. And then only 2% are equipped with AI chips that actually enable the camera to be programmed to search for people. So already there you have kind of a lot of holes in the story of like this national surveillance database. Uh, and then it also has, facial recognition has a lot of problems uh, in terms of just false positives. Uh, even some of the best algorithms have surprisingly high false positive rates. So it's very hard to just rely on facial recognition to track people. And then finally, the last point is just you, you do need a lot of data and you need consistent data that can be shared across provinces and across ministries. And that also goes back to what I'm saying about having a, key, a standard way of tagging the data um, and uh, formatting the data. So there are a lot of issues, um, but what is emphasized is technology can all, often be used as uh, kind of as a threat, as a deterrent, even if it doesn't work. So kind of just the threat that there is this AI-enabled panopticon watching everyone itself uh, ha can already can already deter and can already cause people to to act as if someone is always watching them. For sure. I mean, I think that the, the psychological impact on knowing all of my WeChats are being read by someone somewhere, potentially, I think certainly does change the, um, uh, the, 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 the way you think about things. And particularly all the more so if you know wherever you walk and wherever you visit can be um, uh, can be sort of found out. Um, I'm curious. One of the interesting things you uh, you translated was this Zhuhu post, like a um, uh, it's like a like an American court, like a Quora in China, and it was this Face Plus Plus employee who kind of just was talking very blasé about uh, this company and the startup experience and what it was like and how his boss right. you know ate meat with him or whatever. But you think of Face Plus Plus in the U.S., the first people, the first thing people think of if they have ever heard of it is like you know Xinjiang and AI cameras and right. the police tracking right. you down and and the sort of disconnect there between on the one hand you know this like 22 year old kid graduating college like his first job or whatever um and the technology that he's building like the the, the most obvious use case right now is you know helping right. police track criminals so it's it's a right. very interesting uh disconnect that i that that i thought and uh you know given that you, you you said there really isn't a lot of discussion about this in the chinese media i i, I wonder um to what extent people are maybe engaging on these sort of topics privately or, or not necessarily in um uh, in public realms it's hard right so I think it's it's a very it's not my subject of expertise. Uh, it's but it's it's and it's very hard to kind of make moral equivalences between issues. But maybe just ways of thinking through it. Like let's say you work for a company that their cloud product eventually is used to help ICE, you know, the Department of Immigration Customs Enforcement in the U.S. and that is tied loosely to potentially like separating families at the border to what some people have also co have called concentration camp like environments or approaches. Uh, so it it's hard to I think separate like where your responsibility as a scientist uh, as a technical staff at these 
software companies is. But yeah, I do think it's as technology becomes more integrated in everything we do, it will, you know, there is some degree of responsibility. Yeah, it's hard, right? Another thing to think through would be like, let's say you work at an oil company, right? If you really just play out the degrees of connections far enough, the oil you're building, uh, the oil that you're helping fuel might fuel a lot of bad things. Um, So obviously the case with Face++ is they're actually a technical support partner to a computer vision um, security lab in Xinjiang. So the connection is much closer, and I think the ethical responsibility is much more in your face and much more tangible. So yeah, that has to be at the forefront of a lot of these discussions. Um, At the same time, the hope is that with some of these translations, um, there is some degree of humanizing these people who, you know, um, some of them, yeah, as you're saying, first job, trying to get a house in Beijing, um, are just grinding and trying to do better for their family. Um, and that we all have like these ethical dilemmas that we're going through. So um, the hope is that the newsletter kind of sheds a light on some of the people who are, you know, working in, in the China AI space. Sure. So why don't you why don't you introduce the, the newsletter a little more generally then? So why did you start it? I I just want to thank you first off because uh you know I'm I'm sure uh, you've you've translated some really long pieces and um I'm sure this is you know hours of your week and uh, there there are a number of people all around the world sort of I'm sure appreciating this, but I'm curious what motivated you in the first place and what keeps you pumping these out every week. It originally started because I found this book published by Tencent Research Institute in a, in a government think tank about AI strategy and policy. And it was this 500-page book that was published in November. And I realized that in the spring of the following year that no one had really seen this book, uh, at least in the West, and had not, had not translated it, had not kind of derived some of the insights from it. And actually, a lot of the insights from that book ended up shaping uh, my report where you have some of the co-authors behind this book saying that it was actually the U.S. policy and we perceive U.S. AI strategy as being the world leading. Um, So it kind of like is a very different mindset from what the U.S. policy community is talking about in terms of where they think that China's AI strategy um, is the leading force. So kind of realizing that, oh, actually just reading the original material and seeing what Chinese people are thinking about AI uh, provides a lot of value and uh, gets a lot of insight. Um, so as I started translating chapters of that book, more and more people were interested and kind of expanded it from there to more general translations about uh, China's AI scene. And yeah, what, what keeps it going is it's fun to kind of <laughs> do a lot of these articles. I have a lot of freedom in terms of choosing what topics. And I it's sometimes just like a random topic like AI chips that I've been interested in or Sometimes it would be like a deep dive on a specific company like China's Palantir. Uh, and, and what really keeps it going is just the community that is forming around it, where in each of the translations now we see so many people commenting, going back and forth, suggesting corrections, um, recommendations for future translations. And then last week brought on a friend who is also helping with some of the translations. So the hope is to scale this up and uh, get more people... Uh, getting that kind of transfer from where, whereas in, in the Chinese community, whenever there's a big tech article or a big piece on AI, 
uh, in Western media, it's almost immediately translated and talked about and banned, uh, batted around in Chinese media. But that same transfer is not happening the other way. So the hope is to build that transfer channel to make it a two-way transfer of ideas. I'm curious if any Chinese researchers have sort of have have heard about you translating them and like gotten a kick at Americans, supposedly, you know, the leaders in this field uh, wanting to know what they think. I think the closest to that is I think someone emailed me from a Chinese media outlet and asked to translate my newsletter. (laughs) And I I responded by saying this is already a translation of Chinese writings. So um, but that would be actually kind of funny to have that double layered of translation and see see if like some new artwork can emerge from that or something so uh, you said you said the um you know people are commenting commenting on the articles themselves i mean it, it's cool you you basically throw it up on google doc and so people are kind of debating back and forth within the comment sections on you know what words mean what the implications of certain sentences are it's 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 a really right. fun very you know only in 2018 type uh type thing so so for sure keep it keep it up and uh move to Substack because mailchimp is super annoying um, they don't sponsor me yet, so I can say that. Uh, <laughs> Mailchimp, get this guy a deal. <laughs> <laughs> We're desperate out here. Uh, aside from readers sending you articles, where 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 do you find this sort of stuff? Are you just following folks on Weibo, or what's your what's your sort of method here for getting the um uh, the articles in the first place? Yeah, a lot of it is actually just Baidu searches, Google searches <laughs> for the keyword artificial intelligence. So very rudimentary. Um, but another good source are WeChat official accounts. So there's this entire media ecosystem that's developed, uh, a Chinese media ecosystem, where I think like seven or eight accounts are basically devoted to new technology uh, with AI as a centerpiece. So seeing what those new accounts, I would maybe say that they are similar to maybe the MIT Tech Review, uh, TechCrunch type sites in China. And yeah, there's just so much coming out every day about the latest thing in AI. Uh, And then sometimes the longer pieces, there are some WeChat groups where that are devoted to AI and ethics discussions in China. And some of the longer pieces come from just following clues or people, friends recommending them or seeing them on my uh, WeChat moments. Uh, You you want to recommend one or two of the um, uh, of the better official accounts? Yeah, the, the ones that have featured a lot in some of the China AI translations have been Xing Zhiyuan, um, which is tr- uh, the their English name is AI Era, I think. So you, you've translated a lot of these articles and, and are clearly, you know, steeped in the media scene. But I, I'm curious, aside from a big Chinese media take on the AI police state, which I'm sure is not happening any, any, anytime soon. I'm curious what other articles you, you sort of wish you could read about this about this topic. Yeah, I think I wish there were more articles like the one from Li Guofei on a total rethinking of Tencent's strategy, where it actually gets down to the nitty gritty of, we always get this impression that Chinese companies just have a bunch of data. And my report kind of even goes along with this assumption that data is the key advantage. But in terms of internally, what are the actual on the ground type of implementations of pooling the data? And kind of this article from an insider account from people who have actually worked at WeChat, worked at Tencent, 
was able to shed light on, oh, WeChat doesn't actually have a central data collection repository, that all the data is almost allocated in property rights across all these different divisions. So having that kind of demystifying account from an insider, I'd really like to see that before some of these other companies, um, whether it's Alibaba, uh, iFlyTech, I want to know more about them because they seem to be this new challenger to the bats that aren't discussed a lot. Yeah, I would say that would be probably the main thing I'm looking for. Yeah, I've been reading more about how AI fits into overall technology strategy things like the trade war. Uh, I think you had a previous podcast with uh, the founder of Chublik Opinion that touched on this uh, and kind of how AI ties into these broader strategic questions and what commentators are thinking in regards to that. Because I think there's a lot out there, but I uh, haven't seen much of it yet. Maybe I just haven't found it. Uh, coming back to the data question, you know, it, it, it's interesting because on the one hand, you 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 see people saying, "Oh, data is the key to AI," but on the other hand, you know, there's this whole um, other model of AI where you know it's self reinforced learning, like how um, like how you know computers played um, you know chess against themselves ten million times, and then all of a sudden beat right. the greatest, um, beat Stockfish, or the same thing with Go, or the same thing with Dota a few weeks ago. Right. Um, right. So so I'm curious, you know, to what extent the data actually really is the key versus these other kind of models of learning? Yeah, I think that's a key, like, big picture question for the future. It may be the case that having a lot of data is really good for algorithms that maximize that maximize for a single objective, like getting people to spend more time on the app. Whereas, you know, Tencent's reply to them not using all of their data to maximize this sort of, this sort of idea of almost keeping users addicted to articles is that they're trying to build a more well-rounded uh, sustainable community and it's very hard to plug in an algorithm to maximize for that yeah like you said self-learning um, simulated data uh, those are two things that are technical aspects of ai that could limit the need for a lot of data uh, there may be diminishing marginal returns once you get to a certain level of data, so um, it may be just about about getting to a certain threshold, and then also if eventually data is just shared more frequently, uh, then kind of having your own company's internal data may not be as important. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of meta factors that would affect the salience of data for uh, future AI development. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I, I I'm I'm a little bearish when it comes to the Chinese bureaucracy figuring out how to you know cooperate across different departments and different provinces. I mean, this is like a a centuries old issue, right? And you know, given the rivalries that play out on a daily basis on on less technical problems, I I don't necessarily see this um this issue being fixed anytime soon, regardless of of how focused the um uh, you know the, the the top leadership is on these sorts of questions. Yeah, I haven't seen, I haven't been following the bureaucratic battles that much post the report, but at least from the time in March, um, before March, it did seem like there was a lot of jostling to see who could be the key office that is implementing AI. And then even within sort of the technical standards debate, um, there are a lot of regulatory bodies competing to see who can set the same standard. So I think I'm with you there in that bureaucratic uh, hangups, uh, entanglements will uh, continue to 
hold back some of the development and hold back some of the funding going to the best sources. Jeff, thanks very much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great stuff you're doing here. Hey folks, Kaiser here again, letting you know that you were just listening to China Econ Talk, the latest member of the Seneca Network on Sub China. Search China Econ Talk, that's one word, China Econ Talk, in your favorite podcast app for weekly interviews on economics and technology in China. Take care.